So Hannah, you got a job yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> you made any I have, money? But, look, yes, I've made five hundred dollars. Yeah, well, that's good. That's five hundred off two projects. Okay, so five hundred dollars is is more than anything. But uh, this, as uh, our brother uh, told me when I graduated, uh, Shakespeare got to get paid, son. Um, so today <laughs> we we actually have a, we actually have an interesting uh, episode. Uh, um, this is uh, sound with Owen. Owen Hughes Hodges is uh, a sound recordist out of uh, Perth, Western Australia. He uh, he works pretty much everywhere. Uh, he's not just a sound recordist, he uh, does drone work as well. And uh, he mostly focuses on on, on uh, documentary, reality TV, TVC, but he's done drama, he's done post-production sound, and, uh, and is a really interesting guy. Sounds good. So, Owen, tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it you do? Uh, location sound recording, primarily, um, for film and television, is what my sort of nine-to-five job is, if you could call it a nine-to-five job. Um, and in the last 18 months, I was trained up to fly uh, drones commercially as well. So now I'm, I'm piloting drones as well as uh, doing audio, which is actually a, a very good marriage because um, you can't usually record audio on set when the drones are in the air anyway. So I kind of double up on the job and, yeah, it's a, a natural progression, strangely. That's great. Um, why, what, what kind of uh, work are you doing? Uh, majority of what I do is uh, location, remote location work for documentary series um, or standalone documentaries. So I do a lot of um, stuff for Discovery Channel, uh, National Geographic. Um, yeah, basically if it's remote, isolated, dusty or on fire... I um, <laughs> seem to find myself thrust into the into the sort of fracas. So you know, it's um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, you know, you know, it's funny. I, I remember the, the first the first time we met was on a, a kids show, which was remote and dusty. Yeah, it's been a downhill slide ever since. <laughs> <laughs> when did you uh, decide that you wanted to start working in film and TV? Uh, I was a roadie in the music industry for five years um, and I got sick and tired of always being on the road. The irony being that now I'm just always on the road. Um, <laughs> but it would have been, it would have been 2000, uh, I don't know, it was 2001, 2002, I decided I had enough of uh, pushing boxes and the music industry just kind of jaded me, but I, I still wanted to remain within the audio spectrum of work. Um, Recording studios are pretty much fully sort of established in Perth. Um, so the idea of starting my own recording studio immediately went out the window because the competition I would be facing is just endless. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an endeavor that you would have to be well established already financially before you could try and, and do something like that successfully. Um, mm, and yeah. then, so I, I sort of gravitated towards, um, towards audio in film because um, obviously the film and television industries are very much aligned with the music industry in the sense that you, people, you know, musicians are always recording in studios. They're also doing video music clips and um, there's always some, so there's always a cross. The art forms always sort of interleave with, you know, interleave with each other and, and they rely on each other quite heavily. So uh, it just sort of was a natural 
progression towards film. Um, and, and and you're you're also a musician, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's where my grounding sort of originally started from. That's why I was in the film uh, music industry to begin with. Um, and you never truly leave it. Um, it's just it, it's just branching out, I guess. Um, but my transition to study was I started studying at Curtin um, and did four years there, uh, finishing with my um, honours. But I, I'm in two minds about, about film study. I know, Hannah, you were saying you've, you've just finished. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how you feel about it at the moment. It'd be interesting to talk to you in 12 months um, to see how you feel. But I'm in two minds about my study. I don't regret studying because I met a lot of great people and you'll find that a lot of the people you studied with are the people that you're actually going to end up working with quite a lot in the coming years. Um, mm. But I also think it was an enormous um, waste of my time. And I, <laughs> if I knew now, then what I know now, I would probably have skipped that and gone straight to um, aligning myself with industry professionals. Um, yeah, I, that's, that's a really, inter- really interesting thing. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, but it... It's really hard, I guess. Um, the way I see it is that film school doesn't really prepare you to be on set. No, not at all. And, and especially, I guess I should clarify that for me, the um, the reason I feel that way is because I specifically from day one wanted to focus on audio mm-hmm. and audio recording. And so for me personally, although the theory of filmmaking was crucial and very important, I just I didn't learn about film sound in my four years at university. Um, everything I knew about audio recording came from prior to university, and all my experience of, of how working on set sort of is organised that came post university. So my four years at uni acquired a huge hex debt, um, and I read a lot of books on social theory and um, things that didn't re- directly relate to my field. That's why I'm two minds. I think it's important because I learnt a lot, but at the same time, depending on what field you want to be in, aligning yourself with people, and and Ben, you would you, you you're a testament to this as well. Obviously, like once you meet people that are working professionals and you align yourself with them, generally everyone's quite open and happy to allow you to to sort of well, not tag along or you know on every job, but they're always open for a conversation or to help kind of guide yeah. that those next steps yeah so learn, for me you learn a lot more yeah you learn a lot more for me i think i had a, a couple of uh, key mentors who who helped me in that early stage that that helped but it, again it was a lot of contacts that you make because you get yeah. one job and then you move on yeah well i mean so, that's yeah and that's exactly how it works I, I do know, though. You, it's funny you say about um, a university, and and you're not not whether it was a waste of time. Didn't you write a honors degree about uh, 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 thesis about sound? Yeah, yeah, I did. I wrote. It was on how um, oral point of view versus visual point of view is uh, crucial in the construction of uh, meaning and narrative through the sound design of a film, specifically oh my goodness. drama. That sounds yeah. amazing. I was basically talking about how um, I was talking about how you can guide the audience and tell story simply through audio. So creating on-screen and off-screen geography, establishing um, characters through sound, introducing uh, sort of tension um, and and 
dramatic kind of uh, poignance through through specific audio cues and, th- and things like that. Um, do, do you think that helped you when you were like uh, uh, doing post sound? I know you. I know you did for uh, uh, mix film bitter art. Mm-hmm. And a few other shorts as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it did help, um, but it also helps with my location recording because my understanding of how the sound is going to be used in perspective um, when placing microphones and stuff. It means that I have a greater idea of where it's likely to be used in post. And so I can save a lot of time by not stressing out about things that are just unnecessary. Like if I can't get rid of the giant jet plane in the background, um, you know, and it's not necessary for that shot that I do, then I, I can sort of prioritize those moments. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit like stopping production to get uh, wild lines on after you're doing the wide shot essentially yeah it's pointless it's you're going to go yeah. in for coverage don't worry about it yeah yeah exactly so um, um what yep. talk about just to bring you back to that time just after film school what was it like when you you left uh, uh your university and you were, how did you get started in the the film industry well it's interesting that you mentioned grant spatori before um because essentially Grant is the reason, well, a conversation I had with Grant at university is the entire reason I'm working where I am today. And, um, and this is why I was sort of mentioning before, Hannah, that you'll find a lot of the people that you might not realize it now, but a lot of the people you worked with um, and studied with at university will be the ones that you're working with in the future. Um, mm. I had, I was third year, so I was in my final year pre-honours. Um, Grant Spatori... Uh, and I had a coffee and just a just a general chat, and off the cuff he said to me, uh, "My next short because he was about to finish uni, and he said, my next short film that I do, I'd love you to do the sound on." Um, and I said, "Yeah, I'd be happy to. No worries." And that was essentially the extent of the conversation. I then didn't hear from Grant or see him for about eighteen months. I wow. finished third year I finished my honours year I went to America um, I then came back to Perth and two weeks after coming back super broke and no money I got a call from Grant's producer saying that they were making this short film called Legacy in the Wheat Belt and they essentially and it was the classic indie film producer conversation you know we've um, we've got a great DOP and we've got a massive camera and we can't afford to pay anyone else um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was the uh, yeah, and uh, but it was it was one of those weird moments where I just kind of thought, you know what, like they they they're offering four hundred dollars for the week, and it was like se- six or seven days, yeah, and um, but they're paying for transport, they're paying for accommodation, all foods provided, and it was one of those moments where I looked at um, uh, I looked at who was involved in the crew, and. I recognized a lot of professional names that I'd heard about, but I hadn't ever had chance to work with. So on that crew, for example, and, and I also honored the fact that I'd, I'd said to Grant, I will do your next film. And I think yeah. keeping your word is very, very important, especially in the film and television game, because it's such a small industry and people's memories are very long. Um, oh yeah. You can't, if you say you're doing it, you either yeah. do it or you find someone to do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I, I think your career is very short-lived if you become unreliable because you don't keep your word. So begrudgingly, I kind of said, "All right, well, I, I promised him I would do his next film, so I agreed to it." Um, they had shoestring equipment from uh, I don't think it was like location equipment or HD rentals or something. Um, yeah, yeah. But I looked at the crew list and it was like Rusty Geller doing Steadicam, Emma yeah. Fletcher was doing art. Uh, Richard mm-hmm. Malins was DOP. Like you had, you had some really, really um, solid players coming to the wheat belt for this little film, and um, uh, the actors were also um, sort of top class. And so I looked at it and went, you know what? Like I'm going to get more out of this as far as getting just getting to meet these people than the fiscal sort of gain. So it was one of those jobs where I was like, okay, they're not paying anything but I should probably do it because I'll meet the right people. And then... Yeah, did, yeah. did you find it was a professional shoot? Because sometimes those jobs, uh, they, they flirt around with uh, like long hours and it's, it's hard work and, and a little bit exploitative. Um, it was very professional, actually. Um, and I think that was, was... I mean, guys like Rusty Geller, and I'm sure you've worked yeah, with course. Rusty, Ben. Um, yeah, yeah, I have. Like, Rusty doesn't muck around and he doesn't suffer fools. Like, he rocks no. up with his steady cam rig. If you're going to waste his time, he'll just leave. Like, yeah. Um, you know, the guy shot China Beach on his steady cam. You know, like, he doesn't need to be, uh, he doesn't need to be sitting around under a tree in a field somewhere in um, Tamman or whatever little horrible little town we're in. Yeah. I mean, Tamman's a lovely little town, but it was just, you know, it was hot and dusty and sitting in a paddock. But I mean, the, but where this is where I was saying that it all sort of comes together, and this is why I can pinpoint my career to this one conversation with Grant, is because about eight months after we finished that shoot, and I'd done a few little indie films here or there, or everywhere else, and I'd done started doing a bit a bit more commercial work, so I, I picked up a couple of TVC shoots, um, mm-hmm. and was starting to work on a, on a more professional level, and I was getting a few longer kind of drama shoots here in Perth, that same producer from Grant's film then called me up and said, we've got a six-month shoot in Broome for Trapped. Would you do sound? And that's where I met you, Ben, and that's where it all kind of came together. So I'd been... One conversation, which 18 months later led to an unpaid job in the wheat belt, which then introduced me to a whole lot of people that got me eight months' worth of work professionally that steamrolled into six months in Broome that has then steamrolled into more and more and more. Um, uh, so, so how do you find um, making, uh, like, making those connections? Like, uh, is, do, do you rely on, like, I, I, like some people, they, they do a job and they meet people and then that's how they get their name out, or do you actively go out and seek people out? Um... Well, in, I mean, it's, it's really hard. In audio, it's really hard because we don't get to hang out very often with our like-minded brethren. Um, uh, I mean, unless we've got a boom operator, we're essentially sort of solo. Um, so finding, I found it very difficult to meet other sound recordists. I found it very difficult to, to approach them. Um, they didn't want to talk to me. But you've got to remember, in the, as far as the, the audio perspective goes, um, and I'm not sure, Hannah, if you're um, interested in getting into audio or if you're looking more at camera or producing, but with audio, um, 
there is there's a limited number of people in WA working at a professional level in sound, which means there is a lot of work in audio, but it also means that people are very, very protective of their regular clients and production companies. And um, if you're the new kid on the block, it's not all happy sailing. Like some people can be very, very aggressive towards you um, and dismissive. And you just have to be prepared for for the fact that it's just people getting defensive um, in, yeah, in their I, sort I, of I, occupations. I think in Perth particularly, but I've seen this now uh, internationally uh, living in Houston, that, that people get very protective of their, their little patch and they're not, they're not uh, they're open, which is kind of a, a mistake in my opinion, because if, if you don't, if you're not prepared, like uh, the other day I, I got asked, uh, I need, I need an editor, right? Uh, uh, do, do you have someone? And I'm like, uh, you know, and I'm going through my brain trying to think of who I know in this area and, and whether it could work internationally, uh, um, uh, remotely i should say but uh it, it's when people are so protective they don't and they don't want to talk to you it, it it's very limiting it is enormously so um how do you overcome and, that though well that's that's yeah i mean that's the interesting the interesting part about it is because i so i met all these sort of professionals working um on this legacy shoot which then led me to conversations with other professionals, but not within my field, um, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so it was kind of... Um, but didn't, do you think that helps? Like that, that, that uh, when someone from outside of your field knows that you can do that job? Yeah, word of mouth is very powerful. And I think that's but, what, but, what sort of essentially what got, got me to where I am. Like I think I, I'm agreeing with you, Ben. I think that it's, I think that if you do your job and you do it well, irrespective of what department you're in, other people in other departments recognise that work ethic. The same as I recognise, um, you know, like people like Emma Fletcher and, um, oh, yeah. you know, Greg Sterling and 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 Jim Freider and those guys. Like you, when you work with good people, you recognise it straight away. And and word of mouth is a very very powerful thing. Um, it, uh, the other thing I would say is that you you can't. Uh, miss an opportunity if you have an opportunity to work with professionals you can't let it go because I've seen lots of people particularly you reminded me by saying Greg Sterling I've seen people working for him who would turn up and they're young and they just they get burnt out or they don't they go check their phone or they go take a smoko and and they never work again pretty much um I mean, you, you, like, to put it in perspective, um, Hannah, I don't know if you know of a sound recordist called um, Glenn Dillon. Um, mm. Dillo has been working in and around Perth for, oh, I don't know, Ben, how long has he been in? 30 uh, years? years? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I've been working professionally for 10 years, 11 years, and I met Dillo for the first time five months ago. <laughs> oh, wow. So Dillo and I have spoken on the phone. We've spoken via email. We've... Um, swapped out with each other on jobs when schedules have clashed, um, but I've never physically met him until about five months ago, and that's what I mean. That like in my area, it's it's such, you're such a solo operator that I found it very difficult to meet other sound recordists, which also means I found it very difficult to learn about radio miking properly and 
about getting, um, you know, how to use equipment properly and how to troubleshoot in ridiculous situations where, you know, on any given day, most people would walk away. Um, but those lessons on set is why you learn better on set than you do sort of in other areas. But I think, I think that if you keep your word and you meet other people, it's, it's any of those little opportunities at the start where I got to, I'd go, okay, I'm not going to get paid, but I'm going to get to meet blah, blah, blah. And Mm. it's those relationships that build. Yeah. Um, you, you, you bring something and I may be getting too technical for this, but, uh, and I might cut it out. Uh, but it's like, so you, you mentioned about learning how you, you, uh, radio mic someone properly. Uh, how, how did you learn that? And when did you learn that? Cause I, trial, I remember, trial on, and error. I, cause <laughs> I remember on, uh, um, uh, trapped, we, you know, you lost a couple because of people sweating. Was that part yep. of your, that learning experience? Yep, that was absolutely part of it. Um, and I've, uh, yeah, and, and as I sort of learnt how to protect equipment from uh, the environment and moisture, um, you start researching more in your own time. And the more that you research, the more you, um, you start to, to realise that you can, if you invest properly and don't try and cut corners, the equipment really will work for you. I mean, I've now got waterproof radio mics. Um, uh, that can be fully submerged. Uh, if the antenna goes under the water, you lose transmission. But the moment the antenna breaks the surface, the radio mic comes back to life. And they've been um, they've been in Sydney Harbour a couple of times. They've been in the surf um, off Bondi. Uh, they got dunked into a, accidentally into a crocodile infested river in the Tiwi <laughs> Islands. Um, and they're right. And they're, and they're, and they're rock solid. Um, and they're the ones I now use. Like when I was in Vietnam filming with Jim Freider, uh, we were there for a month. It was super humid, really, really horrible, people sweating constantly. I was able to go, well, in this scenario, my experience has told me I'm not even going to bother with any of the normal setups that I use. Go straight to waterproof mics, put them on, forget about it for the day. Everything's sort of disco. So, so that's waterproof and the pack and, and the mic. And the mic head. Cap- oh, wow. Yeah, everything. Who makes everything's that? waterproof. Electrosonics. Oh, nice. Yeah, they're, they're really, really, really good. And things like as well, um, I mean, when we were shooting Trapped, Ben, we, the, the radio mic technology has come so far in, in, oh, in, yeah. you know, in the last nine or ten years or whatever. Um, you know, the radio mics we were using, the range we were getting on them, we would lose people, you know, 30 metres away, they'd start dropping out and they'd be horrible. So, we, you know, that's why I had Nate you know, running off yeah. on a massive boom up the beach and, and, you know, I actually got him with the boom in the water that day. Um, yeah. Because we just didn't have the range. Um, now, the tech is at a point now where I've got um, uh, a distribution unit in my uh, sound bag that wires all the radio mic receivers up to one unit. And then there's two yep. cables that run up to um, a shark fin antenna. And yep. five months ago in Central Australia, I got just just under a kilometre range on radio mics. Wow. wow, that's it. It's insane. Like like that that kind of technology. If we'd had it, uh, what it ten years ago now? Oh no, sorry, nine years ago, we it would have helped us. It would have helped us enormously. Um, mm. And I mean, it's it's that's yeah, it's but that's just that's something else that you learn that that's something that you learn along the way it's the same as when you're working in camera department and you learn about your lenses and you learn about shot sizes and the difference between a 
you know, a 16 mil lens and an 85 and, and how that affects, you know, the, the shot sizes versus distance from subject. And it's the same in, in, and compression and all the rest. It's the same as in audio. Um, it's just a case of, of learning the gear. But that was also something that I learned along the way because like quite often I'd be, I would, I also had a habit in the early days of stepping off the deep end and accepting jobs that I didn't feel comfortable in. And I think, I think it's important at some point to step off the deep end um, and see what happens because they're often the times when you learn the most. Um, and they're also the times that I found that when I got offered a job working where everyone else was professionals with 20 years plus under their belt and I was the new fish basically floundering, um, that's when you actually find that people are, are genuinely happy to help each other out. That's when I found out that, um, you know, you would get a lot of tips and advice, audio related, I would, um, from camera department saying, well, you know, the people we normally work with would be doing X, Y, Z. Um, you should try that. And then I would sort of go, oh, okay, no worries. And you find that the more professional the crew that you're working with, the more likely they are to give you the time to do things properly. Um, it was the smaller indie shoots where, you know, camera and lighting would spend three hours setting up a close-up of a hand, opening a door handle or something ridiculous. And then all of a sudden they want to roll film, you know, roll cameras and audio's given 30 seconds to fix the impossible. Um, but on the bigger yeah. professional shoots, it just doesn't work that way. You, your, your position is respected as a, as a department on par with everybody else. Um, and that's where I found it very interesting. It was, um, and that's when you start learning more, you start working more, um, those relationships build and word of mouth spreads because if you can do your job and do it well, then, um, and it's about being humble. If I didn't know how to do something, it was about being honest about it and saying, I'm, I'm drowning here. I, I don't know what I'm doing. And if you are honest about not knowing, then people are more likely happy to, to come to the table and to teach you versus uh, people pretending that they know what they're doing and then it gets to post-production and it's awful and that's when you sort of, you know, reputations get burnt and you never work again. I almost, I almost feel like that uh, you learn, the first thing you learn to do is to say yes, right? And then, then it's a slow process of learning how to say no after that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Like, like you, 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 the, the impulse is to say yes to everything and that will get you so far. But then it, people burn out and then you end up with like uh, you have to get to that point where it said no. I remember uh, the, the DP on um, uh, Trapped, uh, Devish Hassan, he, he sat me down over a few uh, drinks, quite a few drinks. Um, at the end of that, at the end of that shoot, and he said to me, "They go now. You have now you've worked professionally, uh, because it was my first professional job. Uh, uh, you you can no longer take a free job. You you can take a job that is uh, a barter, like someone buys you a meal, but like never work for free again. And it took me a long time to actually work work that out. Uh, you know, yeah." Well, that's a, that's a tricky, that's a really tricky area. Um, knowing when, knowing when the crossover point, um, from working for free to gain experience and to increase your network versus, um, invoicing for, for services rendered. Um, I was fortunate in the sense that I never really had to struggle with that because people just started paying me. But I think that may have also been because they were under the assumption that I'd been working professionally a lot longer than I had been. Um, but that might be because 
my work ethic was um, always to go above and beyond um, and, and just kind of get the job done. But that was also because being in the music industry, the, you know, we, there's the cliche of the show must go on um, uh, yeah. Yeah. applies yeah. everywhere. Um, and it's about prioritizing and working out what you can do to make it happen there and then on the spot. Um, I have to say, you're the only uh, sound guy I've ever seen uh, get up while drunk and tune the audio of a musician act at a bar. Oh, that's yeah, that's true. Yeah, they um, yeah, that PA was awful, and it was only half working. They didn't even they hadn't even turned it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, um, yeah. <laughs> that was more for my own oral pleasure as opposed to, uh, you know, feeling obligated to help them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's it's just a tricky. It's a really tricky one. And I've spoken to students recently at um, ECU. Um, I say recently. I'm talking in the last sort of few months. And um, I spoke to some TAFE students recently, and I, I just sort of said to them, "It's it's it's like because it comes down to rates as well." And you would have struggled with this, Ben, at the start. We oh, all yeah. did. You don't know what to charge, and you don't feel right charging full rates when you know honestly yourself. You don't really know what you're doing yet, so you're kind of in this this kind of weird place where if people want to pay you, you you have to you have to learn to put into perspective what your job actually is. So when I first sort of started getting paid and I started getting paid properly, I almost felt guilty for the invoices I was sending because I was like, this is more money than I've ever been paid for anything in my life. I've only ever done you know shitty jobs where I'm you know, on the clock and I hate where I am and I hate my manager and I hate everybody else. And then all of a sudden you're working autonomously with, with a crew um, and you're getting paid very well. But you soon realize that you're getting paid what you're getting paid because there is going to be big gaps between jobs. Um, you have to pay for all your own insurance. You have to pay for your public liability, you know, um, and you might get five weeks where there's just nothing happening and that money has to stretch and, and sort of last. And it all kind of balances out in the end but no one when i'm and hannah i don't know if they spoke to you were you at the screen academy i was yes did they talk about rates or charging or anything like that no 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 one talks about rates yeah no one does and i think that's a huge mistake um because you come out of film school wanting to get involved and wanting to work and you don't really know i mean my first few few professional jobs i was under quoting so badly but i had no idea um, and, and, and it was a that's producer. a problem, right? Huge problem. Pick, if you, yeah, not just for you, but for everyone else in the industry. If you undercut, then producers will start expecting everybody else to charge less, and then yeah, it just it, it, the whole thing collapses and falls apart. And the the invoices, the the rates that people charge are established for the very reasons I mentioned before. You've got so many costs that you have to cover. It's not just your rent and your bills, but it's insurances, it's it's maintenance of equipment, especially if you own your own equipment. Um, your fuel costs, your transport, um, it, it and it all it all adds up at the end of the day. I I ended up I was in a position, and this is why I'm saying I was quite fortunate that when I the first professional TVC that I got. I was asked um, to send in an invoice and I sent in an invoice that was probably 40% of what the standard was. Um, And the producer emailed me back straight away and she just said, "Um, we know that you're green and that you're new um, to the game, but 
you don't want to be sending people these invoices. This is what you should be invoicing for this sort of job. And it was, it was more than double what I'd initially invoiced for. Um, and that for me was like the first kind of indicator of like, okay, this is, okay, that's where I need to be. That's the level I'm working towards. That's where I'm at. This is what uh, people right. expect. But in, at the same time, I also didn't feel very comfortable because I, I, in, my, in my own mind, I'm going, shit, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and, but to a large degree, I still feel that way. Like there's time, there's days now where I, I, I'm waiting for someone to rock up on set and go, what's Owen doing here is a bit of a hack. Um, but I think that, I think that insecurity is also important because it means that I'm always pushing to try and, and be, do better at what, at, you know, at whatever job I'm on. So, you, you know, it's a interesting coming back to the payment. I remember, uh, TVC, two things, right? So my first kind of TVC, I was doing lighting, uh, and the I went up to the like third electric, right? Went up to the gaffer and I said, "What should I charge?" And he goes, uh, "I don't know about uh, three hundred and fifty for the eight hour. Then you do uh, double time and overtime." And then uh, um, coming, and as we progressed along, he was he would up my rate. <laughs> You know, yeah. And he would, it would yeah. but without that, I had no idea. Like, you, yeah. when you first start out, you have no idea. But even uh, it was awkward. I was setting up a, a shoot, a two-day uh, live web com- conference. I, I all uh, needed another operator to operate a desk because it was uh, it just needed a second one. I contacted a guy I know here, and his rate was too low, and he's. I've been around for a long time, and I was like, I had to go. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna charge, char- I'm gonna charge you this much. You're gonna charge me this much. Because yeah, if I quoted that that rate, it wouldn't, it, it would look weird. Well, the other thing is, if you quote, if you underquote too much, um, it actually reflects poorly on you, and then people don't want to work with you because they're wondering why you're not charging professional rates if you're working in a professional capacity. Um, Yet yeah, no, no one talks about the rates. No, but no one talks about them. And that's, but that again, um, Hannah, is what I was um, mentioning before about aligning yourself with professionals in the field that you want to work. Um, yeah. And if you can strike up those conversations or, or, or meet those people uh, either on set or find, you know, like, um, like if you want to work in the camera department, you align yourself with the ACS. Um, and all of the major players are involved in the ACS and they are more than happy to talk to people. Um, and and that's, that's your sort of inroad um, to getting on side with them. And anyone that wants to learn, that's, I mean, that's where it's at. It's the same with the, um, the Sound Guild, the ASSG, the Editing Guild. Um, there's all the these A- professional... The AWG. Yeah, the Writers uh, Guild. The Writers yeah, Guild. Uh, yeah. Directors Guild. ADG. Um, yep. Yeah, ADG, all, all of those, all of those, they... Um, they will more than than likely provide an opportunity for you to meet people in a in a a less stressful kind of scenario than being on set and that's when those conversations sort of start and then it goes and then you and then those relationships eventually build and they might sort of you know someone might say to you hey i've got this gig coming up um you know it doesn't pay a lot but and it's only but it's only a day um do you want to come down and swing a few lenses on the camera or do you want to come and have a chat and that's how it kind of starts. And then those relationships is like you were saying, Ben, that people start saying, okay, this is what we're going to pay you now. And, and this is where we're going to work you up to where you should be 
sort of getting paid as a professional. Um, and that's, that's the it. bridge, I guess, go mm. to work because it's really hard. Students are never going to get paid full professional rates upon graduation because the track record, need, like producers are very, and productions are very, very um, uh, predictable with their crew choices. And they generally only hire crew that have a proven track record that they know and they trust because they don't have the time or the budgets for mistakes to be made for people to be trained up. So it's production companies aren't the ones to approach post-university. This is, I mean, this is my opinion based on experience. I think that it's those professional alignments and when you get that kind of, uh, that green light from, from a working professional, that's when production start going, okay, yeah, no, we can pay them lunch and, you know, a hundred bucks for the day if, if, you know, but they're under your wing and it's, it's up to you and, yeah, it's those, it's, yeah. it's really, it's just a really, it's a really long road. It doesn't happen, it doesn't happen instantly and it's frustratingly slow at first, but, but you find once those relationships build, um, it happens more and more and more. Um, there's a, uh, a young guy, Colin, and, and this is, this is an example of how, how it works. There's a young guy, Colin uh, Chapman. Hmm. who is working as a grip with Clint Lawrence and Greg Sterling. That's who he yep. does a lot of his stuff with, right? He did Blue Dog. He did um, whatever the last shoot was out here. Anyway, Colin was... I was working on a film in the Kimberley um, about two years ago, and Colin was there as a chaperone and driver for one of the Indigenous uh, actors. Hmm. And... That was his job. That's, that was pretty much it. He'd never really been on a film set before outside of the capacity of being a chaperone and a driver. So he would generally, he, his only experience on sets is, is rock up, sit with the, with the actor and then drive them back to wherever they need to go to when the day's filming is finished. Clint Lawrence and Greg Sterling gave him the opportunity to get involved in the grips department. Colin impressed them so, impressed Greg so much in that four or five days of filming that he's been working with, with Greg and um, Clint ever since. Like he literally just, he just became a grip. They trained him up, they paid him, you're in the grips department, there you go, big event. Wow. Um, you know what, you know what, Clint is the same way because Clint started out as a unit cleaning the toilets uh, um, and he had such a personality that, that he got, uh, um, I think Greg Sterling needed someone for a day and was like for a day TVC, he he gets him on, and then uh, he obviously impressed him enough that he was on the next job. I think uh, I can't remember which film it was. One of the ones, uh, maybe maybe Drift. Yeah. But then then he's just been working the whole forever. And that's and that's I guess that's that's the alignment that I'm I'm kind of talking about. It's it's if you get to meet those people and and your work ethic is good. I mean that's that's how that's honestly that's how it begins. That it's it's all word of mouth and it's and that goes back to what I was saying before about how I'm in two minds about my university studies because I'm like you know what if I like I don't know if I would have gone to I mean the contacts I made at uni led me to where I'm working now through that you know through Grant Spatori and that conversation and and sort of getting on to to other work but at the same time at the end of the day, it's about work ethic and it's about doing a, a, a good job and people recognizing that and that bank rolling into, into other work. Um, mm. it's, it's kind of like, you know, the cliche people, you always hear the cliche, of like you've got to start at the bottom and work your way up and, and all the rest. I mean, to a certain degree, that's true, 
But I honestly believe that if you can align yourself with the people in the department that you want to work in and you have a good work ethic, if you work well and you're willing to learn and accept that there's, you know, it, it, there's a long road to go, they will get you back time and time again. Um, and it happens, yeah, it, it happens all the time. And do a good job. Like, they, they, I mean, it's simple. But you turn up early, you do a good job, and you stay as late as everyone else is. Yeah. Yeah, if call time's 8 a.m., I'm generally there at 7.30 at the late. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and like, the first couple of jobs, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, you just, you go on and well, you, you don't. You don't you, <laughs> there's yeah. no way to prepare for it. And Yeah, uh, there's none. And university, unfortunately can give you all the theory in the world so you can understand the the thought process behind the series of compositions that have you know created a, a scene and you you know you can talk about character development and story arc and the mise-en-scene of you know whatever um but unfortunately it doesn't give you the the skill set and a span that thing and this um you know this creates a problem because like i, I don't know about you ben but like i was not prepared for the pace of a professional set until I kind of, when I first got dropped into it, like it is so fast. Um, and you don't have time. People don't stand around, you know, um, wasting time talking about lighting setups. The gaffers just set up the lights based on what the DPs asked for. Um, yeah. And, and it's, and everyone, I mean, that looks quite often, it looks like people are standing around drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and doing sweet bugger all. But when the first AD snaps their fingers and says, we're on in five, every department has to line up and, and be ready to roll. Um, the, the funny thing is it's, it's the speed, but it's the weight, right? That, that was what got me when I first started where you, you're, okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, go, do it now and do it fast, right? Hurry, hurry up and wait around. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, um, but I mean, Hannah, what is your, what, what sort of area are you, are you looking to get into specifically? Well, I'm a director. So yep. uh, that, but obviously it's not so easy to kind of just jump onto set and be directing. Um, so I do my own projects. I've just, I'm finishing a music video, um, yep. but I do want to get onto set and be working professionally in whatever role is, you know, available to me at this stage, which looks like runners and PAs and, Possibly third AD, good, you know. Runners, runners, a good a good gig to get into because um, you'll be used, you'll be used by production, um, generally, sort of in in multiple departments. You yeah, might be working for camera department one day, and then the gaffers might need something, and you can yeah, you you'll be running rushes back to production, and runners are really good way to meet a lot of people. Um, yeah, you get to know people. You yeah. get to know everyone on crew pretty quick because you also get access to all parts of the set because um, you're the, the go-to person to get things to and from. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, makeup wardrobe. It's it's a hard job, though. It is a yes. hard job. Um, but again, that's one of those jobs that if it's done well, um, it won't go unnoticed. Every single every single department will notice if, it, if it's done well and you got through it without collapsing or walking away halfway through the day. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's um, it's uh, I mean, it's it's difficult in the sense of like, if, with directing, for example, um, 
Directing is a, a little bit harder than most other departments because the practical applications of other departments like camera, electrics and audio and wardrobe and things like that, it, it's very physically there on set. And mm. um, I think quite often, especially on smaller indie productions, the role of director is, is misunderstood. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I don't think people sort of realise the the importance of, sol- of, of good direction. Um, but I think the... Um, the options that directors have, especially in Perth, are quite strong. You've got yeah. quite a lot of, um, there's a lot of grant funding um, for yes. f- smaller films. Um, I, I mean, what's, I don't know, even know, what's oomph funding now? Oomph is like five grand or something? Well, grand? I'm not sure that oomph exists anymore because FTI ran out of money. Um, but FTI is fed through Screen West though. Yes, um, but yeah, but but they FDR, they back, yeah, there's I think. some politics uh, happening uh, at the minute. So oomph hasn't politics. been announced for this year uh, um, at all. But I know that there is um, Screen West has lots of options. Yeah, I mean, see, see, I, I think it's interesting for for uh, um, for directors particularly because. You you have this funding that goes to uh, that basically is is taking them on a way up. Do you do a short film, then you do a more expensive short film, then you might do a feature navigator, and then you go and do you know, your Screen West film or the best of them get to that. But the the actual work for directors, the way they make most of their money is TVC. And, Absolutely. And, so, and there's sort of not quite the the path clear path for that no i mean it depends on what sort of director you want to be as well um Mm, if you want to do if you want to do drama um it's a different road to um what i refer to as and i don't mean to be disparaging but the meat and potatoes kind of directing um you get a lot of shooter directors like if you can operate a camera a small sort of p2 camera or something um there's a lot of productions that i work on where it's shooter directors um there'll be a dedicated camera but there's also a director with a camera in their hand um and that's how they knock out their multicam as well as having a director on set sort of getting it done um and then you know those same directors will quite often do the tvcs and 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 sort of things like that um so 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 the kind of work you're doing right now is it um is it like a uh Interview plus B-roll, or is it like presenter, talking to camera, plus B-roll? Everything. Everything from uh, Keystone interviews uh, and sort of overlay uh, right through to multi-camera reality kind of stuff. Uh, I've just spent four months in the gold fields where we had two cameras, uh, three or four GoPros, a couple of Osmos, plus the drone. five characters mic'd up all day and the cameras are everywhere. Um, and, and so, so that's radio mic the whole time. That's radio city. Yeah. That's, and you yeah. just let it yeah. unfold. Um, and at the end of the, I mean, but we, but this is where the technology's come now. I mean, we're using these little tentacle sync devices and we're jamming time code to GoPros and Osmos and oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. everything. Yeah. Like everything is time code sync. So, um, is that, editors, are you doing that via audio? Yeah. Yeah, on the audio yep. track of the GoPro yep. through the mini USB. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so I mean, it's it just depends on on what sort of direction you want to sort of head in. Like, and this is short films. I think um, I've never really been a fan of short films um, mm. as a format yeah, because, but because I recognise it for what it is, and and short films primarily are a business card for directors and DPs, and that yeah. is it. Um, I think they have their place, and I think some stories. 
um, can only be told in a short format. But when it comes to working on short films, um, the reality is, if you want to direct, if you can get the funding to make a short film, they are the perfect calling card for directors to step up to the next tier and start working on bigger and better things. Because they are, they are the way productions and producers can see what you are capable of. Um, yeah. And I, I, the, my objection to short films is when I get the spiel from young filmmakers, especially sort of, you know, giving me the, the rundown that it's, you know, it's going to revolutionise cinema as we know it. <laughs> and, you know, like their, their story about like a young, deaf, blind, mute, Jewish, Aboriginal girl um, is, you know, who with an abusive father and a mother who suicided and she's in a wheelchair and, you know, like it's always too many really heavy topics um, condensed into a 15-minute film and they always try and push every single artistic style into 15 minutes that they think is going to be like the greatest film ever. And, it, and it's always a disaster. Um, and you all, and I always get, and I mean, even recently, I got approached recently by some, some young guys out of, I think it was Murdoch maybe. Um, and they said to me, um, you know, we don't, you know, we want to make this film and we want to work with, with professionals, which is fine. Um, because that's, you know, like, and like I said, it's aligning yourself with working professionals that gets you those contacts. So I was happy to talk to them at first and I was, you know, and they said, you know, we've got no money and I'm like, it's okay. If it's only two or three days, I'm happy occasionally to go and help people for two or three days to sort of show them around. But then I found out that they had hired, you know, they've rented an Ari Alexa. They've got uh, Panavision prime lenses. They've got like all the fruit and they're paying for a DP plus two ACs. And oh my God. yeah, and I just said to him, like, the reason you have no money for anyone else in the crew is because, like, you, you, you've rented an Ari Alexa that you don't need for your, like, it's going to be on sticks in the corner of a room. Um, yep. Yep. You've, got, you've got a camera you don't need. You've rented lenses you're probably not going to use more than two of. Um, and you're paying a DP plus two ACs. That's ridiculous. Like, your priorities in this scenario are all wrong. You need to be realistic about what it is the film that you're trying to make and make it within that budget as best as possible. Now, in saying that, there is a, there's a lot of working professional DPs that I know of that will happily come and help out for two or three days on short films because they want to give back and they want to help people build those relationships and those contacts. It's the same reason that I'm happy to work on shorts occasionally for nothing because it's like this is... You know, it's where you get to meet the next crop of graduates that are coming out. People stand up above everyone else and you go, yep, that per- I know I'm going to end up working with that person in a couple of years because they're, you know, they've got it with their mindset. They've got it right. They know where it's at. Um, but if you can, as a director, if you can get those stories and those, those, that funding together, um, I think if you're then realistic about how you want to film, you'd be very surprised who would jump on board if you managed to talk to... Um, to some working professionals and even just cold calling people out of the blue and saying, um, what's the best way for this to come together? Mm. Yeah. I think, I think short films are interesting in that they take a step back. You, that they allow you to make a mistake. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And that's why I think professional people are happy to work on them with independent filmmakers because it's, it's part of a training ground, um, for the young filmmakers fresh out of sort of studying, but it's also, um, 
it's also a way for the working professionals to keep tabs on on who's doing what and who's sort of you know, coming up through the ranks. And there's quite a lot of young independent filmmakers I've worked with over the years who you do one or two sort of short film jobs with and the next thing you know, they're calling me saying, hey, I've got this ridiculously high-paid TVC gig or I've got something else. And it's just about maintaining those networks as well as sort of giving back. You, you look at people uh, that, that Grant Spatore is one, uh, maybe yeah. Ben Young's another, yeah. uh, Paul Comedine is another that I can think of where you, they started off about the same time as as uh, I, myself and you did, um, as old men now. Um, we, <laughs> and they, they started off on the small stuff and you, you kind of follow their career as they, as they develop. Well, Ben Young is a, a great example. I mean, he... He did, he did quite a lot of short films. Um, he took music those, videos well. a lot of music videos. He took those breaks when he got them, like Trapped and Castaway. He, he, he took those shoots up in the Kimberley. Um, and they were hard from a directing perspective. Um, working with kids yeah. is very hard, especially working with that many. Um, and, and the scripts weren't great. Well, um, yeah, they were hit and miss a lot of the time, I found. Yeah, exactly. Um, and having a lot of different... Um, Having, uh, uh, yeah, having a lot of different um, writers a- as well, I think, changed the, the flow of the scripts and that confused the kids because a lot of the kids weren't professional actors necessarily. They were quite green. Um, but Ben went from like that kind of work and then he, I mean, if I remember correctly, he got the West Coast funding um, a couple of years ago to make a film, a feature film, um, and that, that fell over for various reasons. Um, and he came back to Screen West with a new script and a new idea. Um, he got the funding again. He made Hounds of Love. Hounds of Love is going gangbusters around the world. Mm. And he's now shooting his next feature in Serbia um, with David Vincent uh, Smith um, as a director's attachment that Screen West has paid for him to go across to Serbia for the whole shoot with Ben, yeah. including part of pre-production. Um, and, and that was... and that chronology of, of Ben Young's sort of career is very much what we're talking about, that he started with the smaller grants and the funding. And he also aligned himself with professionals and said to them, this is what I want to do. And this is the film I want to make. And we're constrained within this budget, but you know, would you be interested? And, and quite often, if the script is good, you will get good crew jumping on board because yeah. if it's only two or three days filming, um, like honestly like i know if i've got three weeks and i've got nothing to do and someone says hey hey, do you want to film for three days and i like the script i'm more than more than often you know i will agree to come on board for a sandwich and and a bit of fun um but yeah they've got they've got to have good food good yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and but, but it's um but it's most i would say it's most definitely about aligning yourself with um aligning yourself with people that you want to you want to sort of uh work with in the future as well as getting onto that funding um kind of train with screen west like screen west isn't going to give you seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make a feature if they don't know who you are you need to start on the smaller grants and work your way up um the yeah and i think he ben young uh and uh aligned himself well with producers yep very much so and and getting to know producers and letting them know what you want to do and how you want to go about it. And if you've got some, some short film work, um, 
that you can put into a showreel uh, to give them like any of that. You'd be very. It's, I, I'm. I'm. I've always been surprised um, how sort of open producers and production companies are um, to crew just approaching them. Um, it's really interesting. I've had students from different universities um, over the years uh, sort of saying, how do you get into the industry and how do you get work from an audio perspective? And I've sort of said to them, you know, once you know what you're doing and you've got your equipment up and stuff like that, um, call, call production companies um, and, ask, you know, and, and ask for an email address that you can send your CV. Hey, this is who I am. Uh, this is what I've done, what I can do. You know, in case you ever need an extra sort of sound recordist, um, you know, I'd be, I'd be happy to have a chat. And um, nine times out of ten, those production companies call back at some point in the near future and say, are you available? Are you free? Hmm. Um, yeah, do you, just coming back, do you think it's important for a sound recorders to have their own equipment? Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, um, the higher options in Perth are very, very limited. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's very very limited. Um, I don't see. I just I just don't see how. Was that hard when you first started? Um, yeah, it was because um, because it's expensive and it's and it's it's hard. Um, but it was a good training ground too because it meant that if I only had a boom, I, I had to learn. I had to know how to get the audio as best I could just on a boom. And I couldn't rely on radio mics. Um, so it was a good training ground in that regard that I was able to sort of refine the skill set of getting the audio right on the boom. And now the radios are just a luxury that sort of enhance everything else I'm trying to do. Um, but I, I think uh, it's... I Yeah, sorry? Oh, no, no. Continue. I was just going to say, I think it's, um, it's one of those things that people don't expect you to have all the equipment first up either. A lot of productions will have... Their own cameras, their own equip, their own sound gear, or limited as it, as it may be. Um, but it's it's just it's honest. I, I just I firmly believe it's about making those contacts and aligning with those people. For example, um, I know FTI at the moment has um, James Bogle is in residence as a director in residence that you can call them up and go and have a chat with him and meet with him. I would highly recommend uh, you go and have a chat to James Bogle. Sure. Um, because I, I worked, I worked with him on the war that changed us, the mm -hmm. four-part series we did with Electric Pictures on World War One. Um, that was a six-week, uh, six-week drama shoot doing World War One re uh, reconstructions. Um, James is an excellent director. I mean, I basically sat next to him in Split Village, um, Video Village, with continuity while I had Nate uh, booming out in the minefields, getting blown up. Um, yeah, you know, that's what a boom operator is good for. Um, send them into the into the fray. <laughs> yeah, so you don't have to. So I don't have to. Yeah, I, I I don't like getting sort of like you know dust and debris blown into my face. Um, Nate loves it. <laughs> but I mean, like things like that don't come up very often. So I would say while James Bogle's still there for the next couple of weeks, if there was a way for you to to get in um, and have a yarn with him and have a chat with James, he's yeah. a wealth of knowledge. He would also have some really good some really good opinions and pointers as to, to where to go next. Um, if directing is, is where you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he's also one of those contacts or those points. And he's, he's such a lovely guy. Um, he, he's one of those contacts and one of those points that I think you would find um, 
at some point would would come back again in the future. And that's the thing that's interesting about these relationships. You know, like I said, this conversation I had with Grant turned into nothing. It took 18 months for anything to happen. And then it was another eight months after that shoot that I just randomly got called again. Um, You just don't know. The conversations you have with people now could benefit or, or, or come to fruition a year, two years, three years down the track. Someone will will pick up the phone and call. Um, so I, yeah, I, things like that from a directing perspective, um, and any of the initiatives Screen West has as well. It's just getting once Screen West knows who you are, and once people sort of um, know that you're out there and what what it is you're trying to do. Um, it all starts falling into place, essentially. Um, yeah. It's it's never it's never going to come to you, basically. I mean, yeah. Is that right in thinking, Ben? Like it's. If- I, I I'd say so. I think that's that's really good advice. Um, it's about the hustle. I, it is it well is to a degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, thank you for for talking. Um, do you, do you have any last thoughts that you wanted to to uh, commit to tape? <laughs> I have so many thoughts on so many things. Yeah, <laughs> um, I know I, I, you were you were quite restrained actually from. Yeah. Uh, no, I would I, I would say Hannah that it, for me personally, um, like I because I can I can pinpoint the start of my professional career to one conversation. Mm. Um, I think that I, I think there's everyone has everyone has a moment where they'll be able to look back and go that's where that was the moment that was the decision I made that really opened the doors and kickstarted everything um, and I think that those doors open based on um, keeping your word when you say you're going to do something and and having that integrity that people will recognise and and that attracts people to want to be working with you again in the future. And also, um, it's just that alignment. Get get those get into those positions where you can have those conversations with those people. Like opportunities like James Bogle at FTI, mm-hmm. jump on top of that. Yeah. Any funding through Screen West, if you've got a really good script and it's coming together, jump on top of that. Um, and once you start meeting people, uh, you know, and 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 it can't hurt to to hit up the people you want to work with, you know, like send an email off to a, a professional DP and say, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. You know, we don't have the budget to pay. We don't have the budget to pay you properly, but this is, you know, this is what I'm trying to achieve and what I want to do. And I really want to work with you. And if you know their history, like you can say, look, I've seen X, Y, Z that you shot mm-hmm. and I really loved it. Um, you then show that you're not wasting their time and you're not just blatantly cold calling. Um, yeah. Uh, I had this this happen to me. Uh, the I did this music video short film. Uh, the guy paid me. I was I was the entire crew basically, <laughs> and he's a young up and coming rap artist here in Houston. And he googled uh, like camera work Houston, saw some of my stuff, and contacted me. And then we we I just said okay I'll have a coffee with you, uh, sat down we chatted and he was uh, so positive and uh, um, uh, interesting and and receptive 
to to what I was talking about that we end up making this uh, short short film music video he directed I I shot and uh, and edited so yeah. so uh, you know well it's a, it's a huge difference it makes a huge difference I mean it's it's what's the shit floats to the top basically is the most polite way I can say it. Um, <laughs> if, um, if, but I mean, like it's, I've worked on jobs and Ben, I'm sure you have as well. If, if people are, if there's no authenticity to people's intention as to what they're trying to do, it is very, very apparent. Um, and if a director, for example, um, is making a film purely for the purposes of making themselves look good, not because they believe in the story and they want to make that project because they, they feel it needs to be made. If it's purely selfish intent and it's all about their own gratification, that's very apparent and that abuse on the crew translates to the crew not doing a very good job. Whereas if you genuinely want to make this film, um, or you know, a film in particular, but you know you don't have the budget and you know you don't have um, the, the time really to, to give it what it needs, you either put the script aside for another time or you approach professionals and say, look, I, I'm really, I really don't have a huge amount of money, but if we could just come together um, on this, that would be fantastic. And if you don't have the time, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Now, that kind of authenticity shows through and people people absolutely come to the table for it. I've worked on short films that I, I, I swear to you, I have no idea how they got the money together, where we all got paid a sample, like a small amount. I mean, George Jones and the Giant Squid, when we did that, um, we got paid you know, a token amount. It wasn't a huge amount. But I mean, that crew, that was Mick McDermott was DP. Um, Perry Sandow was gaffing. Greg Sterling uh, and Clint Lawrence were grips. Um, there was myself and Nate doing audio. Emma Fletcher was involved in art. Um, I don't, if these names don't mean anything to you, Hannah, I'm sure they do to Ben. Um, mm. Yeah, they do. Like they're yeah, all, yeah, they they're, they're, it's, it was like them. a fully, prefer, everyone on the crew was top shelf. Like it was all professional uh, sort of, workers within their, their fields and every department had attachments as well. Um, and that budget was tiny. That budget was like 70 grand. Um, but everyone read the script, loved it. Ella Wright, who produced it, um, everyone was sort of like, yeah, we're happy. You know, like Ella was, was completely honest with everyone from the start. She's like, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we want to do. We don't have huge amounts of money, but you guys are all great in your fields. And everyone had this, this three or four days free and we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, why not? Let's do it. So, you know, these enormous gaffer trucks and grip trucks and everything just starts rocking up <laughs> to, to set in Fremantle, like in Fremantle. And, and it was an incredible thing to see because it was quite literally one of those moments where, you know, a producer that was very genuine about um, what she wanted to do and very honest about the restraints that she had uh, budget-wise um, a really good script and two very, very um, dedicated and appreciative directors that made the whole crew come together and go, it's, yeah, I'm ha happy to do it. Happy to do it. It was hey, one of those times where everyone sort of came on board. I, I have a similar story. Uh, Zach Hilditch, um, before he did his, his feature film, um, which the name escapes me, you know, the one at the end of the world. These Final Hours? Um, uh, he did a... That one? Uh, yeah, these final hours. He made a short film, uh, uh, Transmission. They had a, about a $100,000 budget. So I, I get called up and they say, oh, look, can you take stills? We really need stills to... Because it, it was uh, deliberately made 
to get funding for the the feature film. Uh, I go out. I know the gaffer, um, uh, uh, Alfie, and he, uh, he his best boy was like some guy who had never worked in the industry before, and he was struggling. So he goes, "Oh, look, can you take photos and best boy for me?" Um, and then uh, I knew the first AC. Uh, uh, um, and the last day there, her clapper loader had to go because he was from Melbourne and he just had to go. And so I did like clapper load on that as well. It, you know, because I had those relationships already built, I, I was happy to help these people out. And later on, they helped me out. You know, it just it just works that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah it it does. It does absolutely. It's um, um, it's just it's you'll find it's I was it's I understand it's daunting. Uh, when you, you first graduate, trying to work out how to meet people and how to step into the industry and how to start getting work because we all feel it when we graduate because you, you don't really know that next step because the university just doesn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it never ceased to amaze me how approachable everyone is. Um, re- like, it then, it, like the industry is not untouchable. It's just simply a case... Of, of stepping off the deep end and, and making that leap. And once you make that leap, people are very, very... As long as you're honest about where you're at career-wise and in your skill set, people are, are, are more than happy to help guide and, and sort of help to train further um, anyone in, in a field they want to work in. I, I see it all the time. Um, and it's those people that want to work and, and are willing to commit to it that will get to continue working and get more and more sort of paid jobs. Um, I mean, I find it astounding. I've had, I've taught several students from ECU, Curtin and Murdoch um, and, and some TAFE classes over the last few years. And every single time I finish up, I say to them, here's my card. If you have any questions, this is, I'm talking about audio students here. Mm. I say, um, if you have any questions or you ever want to ask me anything, email me or give me a call. I'm more than happy to answer the phone and help you out you know, in whatever scenario you're in. If you're in a situation where you don't know how to radio mic someone or you're not sure about how something's going to be set up or how to record something, I'm more than happy to talk talk it through over the phone, have a bit of a chat to you, and that's, you know, and help that kind of learning process. Mm. I've had one student call me once. Wow. That's ridiculous. Mm. And it's, I find, I just find that astounding. It's like, you don't have to be struggling to work out how to get into the industry and to start working. Like I've given you the offer of calling me and I will help with that learning process and not, you know, and only one called me once. Mm. Um, and I just found, I find that incredible. And, and anyone that I, I speak to, um, that works as a professional in any department will, will say the same thing. If, if someone wants to call and you know, have a chat or talk to me, you know, if I've got the time and I'm not away on a job, I'm more than happy to talk to them and say, hey, yeah, this is, you know, this is roughly how it works. Um, but people just never call. Um, and, yeah, so I think if you, were, you know, if you were able to call or approach someone and say, hey, what's the best way to blah, 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 or what's the, you know, such and such, can, can I have five, can I buy you a cup of coffee and have a lendy view here for five minutes? You'd be very surprised how many people are, are happy to sort of jump at the chance to, to have a chat. Um, yeah. And it's those conversations that ultimately lead to those relationships building up and then work kind of coming together. Um, that and getting your own sort of stories and films up and running. So uh, so speaking of 
giving you a call. Where can people find you, Owen? Me? Yeah, if they want to hire you. Uh, well, I've actually, uh, well, it's all word of mouth, mostly for my work, believe it or not. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Um, I'm halfway. No, I, I would believe that. I'm halfway through building a website, um, which is mediasoundsolution.com. Um, it's not online at the moment. Um, but I've actually, I just got an agent from Sydney just signed me up as well. I just oh, got fantastic. poached by a crew agency. Yeah, RMK crew in Sydney. They, um, uh, was, it, was it hard to get onto an agent? Well, not really because they, uh, they called me. Um, well, that's like the best I said, way. Best way. Yeah, like I said, it was word of mouth. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, I firmly believe that the more you work and the more you do your job and you do it well, um, the more those relationships build, the more word of mouth spreads, and then work starts coming to you. Um, I, I haven't had to put an email or a call out uh, looking for work for probably seven years. Wow. Um, and, and I'm very fortunate in the sense that there's only a handful of soundies in Perth working, doing what I'm doing, so I'm kind of on the shortlist by default. Um, but I also firmly believe that you were judged on your work and your previous work. And so, um, as long as I keep doing my job, um, and I keep doing it well, then, um, hopefully the phone will keep ringing and obviously yeah, word of mouth yeah. spread to Sydney. And I got a call from the agent saying, can we put you on our books as a Perth based soundie? That's fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you again for your time. Yes. Thank you as, so much. As always, you're interested to talk. No worries. And get into the sound department, Hannah. It's way cooler than directing. <laughs> I want to learn more about it because I feel like it's really important and I should know about it. I don't want to say that I'm the keystone, but I'm pretty much the keystone. <laughs> so audio holds it all together. I'm not going to lie. It's, <laughs> it's true. I have to say that at least. I have to say that at least once, Ben. It's, uh... All right, that was really interesting. Owen oh, was such a, a fun guy to talk to. I feel like I've learned so much. Yeah, he was uh, very positive and he's a good talker. Yeah, and so basically, be nice, take opportunities, is what I got yeah, from that. And and take the uh, talk to people, build up a connection, network of connections. Yes, I feel like that's easier so, said than done, but I feel uh, that's the challenge, I guess. That is the challenge. So, Hannah, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on the internet most days. Uh, I have a website, hannahpoppypasco.com. It's a bit boring. Um, you can find me on social media, but most of the time my name is Poppy Pasco. I don't know if you want to know that. I've also got a new Instagram called uh, Robin Doing Things. Check it out. And you can find me, Ben Pasco, at uh, benpasco.net or on... Uh, the other social media as at the Society of Ben. Uh, so we'll see you next week. Bye.